Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on, for it won't be long till you'll only have government to lean on. Ah, the classics. Even better when they hold timeless truths like that. President Ronald Reagan made it very clear that he was from the government, and the government is always there to help. Don't look it up. Just trust me. I, like our government overlords, would never mislead you. Now, our government, from its inception to this very day, is always there to protect you and watch over you, down to your every single movement and keystroke, and allow you the freedoms that you want, and even some that you didn't know you wanted and provide you with the means to live lives of fulfillment. They're just too good to us. To that end, today we'll see just how much government really, really loves the little children. Then we'll learn how sticks and stones may destroy all life on the planet, but the government will always save you. And finally, we'll see how God says you can either serve him or money, but the Democrats will pay you money to serve them. So you get uh, two things. So strap on that ankle monitor, make sure your bunker is fully stocked, and get ready to cast your vote, and your vote, and your vote, because I'm from the podcast world, and I'm here we go. I've mentioned this before, it's been a while, but why is it, as we grow up, we tend to stop asking why? Without that question, I would literally not have a career. In my current job, for example, a robot was installed to perform a heavy lifting task automating it so it wouldn't have to be babysat. For the two years before I was moved over to this facility, I believe four or five other people fought nothing but problems with this newly installed robot to the point that it was being constantly babysat on its own and was actually causing more problems than it was meant to fix. I'm not going to say that those before me didn't do the right kind of troubleshooting, but it seems that they were all mostly fixated on one of the many, many issues it was having. It took me about five months, and it runs perfectly now. The difference is that I asked why. I asked it a lot. Some of that being, why me? <clears throat> but, but it would do a thing. I would ask, why did it do that? I'd come up with some reasons, many times going back to the company that programmed it for clarification. But after five months of asking why, I was able to get the solution to the main issue that had been chased for two years, as well as fix about a dozen other bugs that needed tweaking of the programming to work correctly. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I'm not saying I'm smarter than the others. Quite the opposite would be my guess. I'm not a school guy. I graduated college with a 3.0, but only if you round it. You know, if you go with the full number, it was a 2956. I wasn't good at calculus. I wasn't good at fluid dynamics. I wasn't good at heat transfer. In fact, I wasn't particularly good at my engineering courses in general, truth be told. I was just good enough to get by. But I've had a fairly successful reliability engineering career thus far because I ask why a lot, and I'm generally pretty good at analyzing a situation and finding the answer or answers to my question. 
And this is what I do when I read the news, when I look at the state of the nation and the world. It seems that many people these days are at most only interested in what, but we really don't think about or even care about why anymore. And this is what our politicians, left and right, count on. This is what our media counts on. Don't ask why, just trust me as to the what. And that brings me to, well, just about any website or news outlet right now, but I went to the source, found on NASA.gov, headline, NASA's DART mission hits asteroid in first ever planetary defense test. Now, this is an interesting story and an interesting project. I find it kind of ironic, as the conspiracy theory is that there was no moon landing, it was all done on a soundstage, now we're taking what was done in Hollywood, you know, like with the movie Armageddon, and doing our own version, live. Anyway, the gist of this article, of this NASA project, was to test the theory that we could intercept an asteroid heading for Earth, one that would spell certain doom, impact it with an explosive satellite of some sort, and knock it off its trajectory, thus saving all of mankind. So, DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, was launched into space about 10 months ago, heading for an asteroid pair, a larger asteroid named Didymus, well, I, we named it, I don't think anyone asked, measuring about a half a mile across, being orbited by a smaller asteroid that we have named Dimorphos, about one-tenth of a mile across. The target was the baby, Dimorphos. They wanted to see if they could input enough kinetic energy to alter the orbit of the smaller asteroid. Remember, this is the first test to see if they could actually hit it, and if so, to test their theoretical calculations compared to the actual results. So as of Monday, September 26th, NASA did successfully impact Dimorphos with DART. And this is a satellite that weighed slightly less than an original Volkswagen Beetle at a speed of about 14,000 miles per hour, slightly faster than the top speed of said Beetle. They know that for sure the impact occurred. But now's the waiting game. It'll likely take a matter of weeks to a few months before they have the data they need to reach a conclusion about their success. Lindsay Johnson, NASA's planetary defense officer, and can we all just admit that that's one of the coolest job titles you could possibly have? Well, she said, quote, DART's success provides a significant addition to the essential toolbox we must have to protect Earth from a devastating impact by an asteroid. This demonstrates we are no longer powerless to prevent this type of natural disaster. Coupled with enhanced capabilities to accelerate finding the remaining hazardous asteroid population by our next planetary defense mission, the Near-Earth Object, or NEO, surveyor, a DART successor could provide what we need to save the day. So what exactly are they looking for? Well, like she said, they want to detect near-Earth objects, or NEOs, and potentially hazardous objects, or PHOs. So what are those? Well, to be classified in NEO, the asteroid has to be within 30 million miles of Earth's orbit. To be classified a PHO, it has to be within 5 million miles. For some sort of scale, the distance of the Earth to the Sun is about 93 million miles. The distance from the Earth to the Moon is about 240,000 miles. So when you say near Earth, when, when they say potentially hazardous, I guess maybe NASA and I will have to agree to disagree on our definitions here. But this is what they're protecting us from. 
So how close have we actually come to destruction in recent history? Well, the closest asteroid we know of passed about 1,860 miles from the Earth. This was back in just 2020, but the asteroid was only like six feet across, so it probably wouldn't have mattered at all. What's interesting is that even that small of a rock passing that close wasn't captured by Earth's gravitational pull. So to have an impact by an asteroid that really matters, it appears to me that it would have to be something already heading directly at the planet, not just something, you know, skimming by five million miles away. Okay, some more background info. Looking at a list of near misses, we can see how close all asteroids have come, but size matters also, right? So it's estimated that the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs was six to nine miles wide. Now, what we do know for sure is that we have had a massive asteroid impact in the past. We have the physical evidence. Biblically, I'd argue that it had to do with the global flood of Noah's day. But what we can all agree on is that it did hit the Earth. According to the database, the largest asteroid that flew close to us was about 3.4 miles wide at a distance of about 4.3 million miles away. The next largest at about 3.1 miles across came much closer at about 864,000 miles away. And the size goes down from there with various distances, but nothing that appears to be anything like what caused global catastrophe, regardless of your worldview, in either size or trajectory. Additionally, the European Space Agency, the ESA, maintains a list of NEOs that we're watching. They have over 1,400 NEOs on their list, the largest being about 1.25 miles across, with a probability of hitting Earth calculated at worst to be 1 in 1.1 billion. Now, I'll take them odds. The next largest object is less than a half a mile wide with a one chance in 153 million that it'll hit the Earth. And again, I'm, I'm okay with those odds. Now, if you look up the largest impacts in human history, uh, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of fantasy in there. But science, you know, with quotes around it, believes that about 600 million years ago, at least 60 asteroids of three miles across or larger impacted the Earth. And then we have very large craters, which implies impacts on the surface of the planet. Now, when did this happen? I don't know. I'd also argue that they were related to the global flood and massive restructuring of the Earth, as well as knocking it into a tilted axis. It's purely speculation on my part. But science, again with the quotes, claims that these impacts happened tens or hundreds of million or even billions of years ago. Now, I think I'll stick with my claim. The last piece of the puzzle I'll give you is the cost of the DART program. Although not all the costs are in, it's estimated to cost around $325 million when all is said and done. So let me ask this. For the cost, which admittedly isn't a lot compared to what our government wastes on pretty much everything else, but still, it's a third of a billion dollars. With the size of the impacts that we know happened at some point in the past, with the relatively small size in comparison of the asteroids that we're currently tracking, combined with the massive distance that we're tracking them at and the very low probability of impact, why are we doing this? That's the question we need to ask. Why do we care? I mean, I understand how one could argue that we need to be on the lookout and have a plan of contingency ready, but do we? Again, I ask, why are we so focused on this? Well, the bottom line is that all of this stems from a non-biblical worldview. 
at least at the physical level, the, the human worldview. The belief structure they're working from is that nearly all life was destroyed in the past, and it can and will happen again, and we are the only hope of saving ourselves. Now, the reality is that, yes, as I said, there obviously have been asteroid impacts in the past, some of which have been very large. I'd also agree that it contributed to wiping out nearly all life on Earth. All but eight people in a large wooden box of animals. Those asteroids, whether they were set on their course 1,500 years prior at the start of creation, or whether they were supernaturally manifested at the right time in the right location to do exactly what God purposed them to do, it doesn't really matter. If the same thing were to happen today, it won't, but if it were, would it matter if we could track them or not? Would it matter how many darts we had? If God determines an asteroid will impact the planet, I'll give you one guess as to what's going to happen. Along the same lines, having a biblical worldview would tell us that we're not going to be wiped out. The planet isn't going to crack in half from a massive asteroid impact or a series of nuclear explosions or the global temperature increasing by 0.01 degrees Celsius. The planet will be wiped out on God's timing only at the end of the age when God remakes everything perfect as it was in the beginning or even better. Now, interestingly enough, though, there will be another very catastrophic asteroid impact, or, or possibly two. At least it sure sounds like it at some point in the future. In Revelation 8, starting at verse 6, we read, Now the seven angels who had their seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So what exactly is this great burning mountain that's thrown into the sea, turning a third of the water into blood? And what is this great star named Wormwood that falls from heaven, or space, and poisons a third of the rivers and springs? I mean, at least Wormwood sounds like an asteroid, right? A substantial one, at least to me. They both actually, to me, sound like an asteroid impact. So, knowing what it says in Revelation, knowing that Satan knows the Bible better than any of us do, that he knows the signs of the end times, that he knows the events as described by John in Revelation, and neither he nor we know when these events will happen, and acknowledging that God is in ultimate control, but from a human viewpoint, Satan can influence humans, and knowing that Satan has been trying to knock God off his throne of heaven since the beginning— would it be surprising if Satan is the influence behind ensuring there's a technology out there to stop an asteroid? I mean, Satan doesn't care about the death this wormwood will cause. He hates humanity anyway, since we're image bearers of God. But if he can force God to break a promise, think of the Holocaust trying to break God's promise to protect his chosen people. If he can force even one prophecy to not be fulfilled in the Bible, then he is now stronger than God. God is knocked off his throne. 
Now, he can't and won't ever be able to do that, but that doesn't stop him from trying. So would it be shocking from a spiritual realm standpoint if all of this, which looks like absolute insanity right now, taking into account all of the data I gave you previously about these NEOs and PHOs, would it be shocking to find out that this was all part of a plan that Satan has to stop just one final prophecy from coming true? Now, I don't know. Maybe that's a little far-fetched. I, I, I get that. But this is what my mind does. I ask why. Now, if you ask why, your results may vary. But when I ask, I come up with this layered answer as to why. Fear of a life-ending asteroid like science is sure happened before. Fear of death because of an evolutionary worldview. And Satan plotting to try to knock God off the throne with one last-ditch effort as when it gets to that point in the end times described in Revelation, his options are pretty limited. Now, if not those reasons, what is your answer to why? Thankfully, we know that we do not need to fear a life-ending asteroid strike, not until God's appointed time. We can also take comfort in knowing that just because Satan wants to ascend to heaven and sit on the throne and usurp the position of God, it won't and can't ever happen. God, the creator and sustainer of this entire creation, is in control. So, dart or no dart, we can sleep soundly knowing that God's got the whole world in his hands. Let's play a little game, shall we? I'll give you a couple definitions. You try to guess the phrase that I'm looking for. <laughs> Okie dokie. Oh, this will be such, such fun. Okay, here we go. Definition number one, an argument in which a party asserts that a relatively small first step leads to a chain of related events culminating in some significant, usually negative effect. Definition two, a specific decision under debate is likely to result in unintended consequences. You got it yet? Yeah, you probably do. But let me give you a couple alternative ways of saying what I'm looking for, just in case you don't have it yet. How about dominoes, or dam burst, or snowball, or the camel's nose, one of my favorite, the parade of horribles, or my absolute favorite, the thin end of a wedge? Got it yet? Yeah, you got it now. Slippery slope. It seems like I've been bringing that up a lot lately. About 15 years ago, the push for gay marriage started gaining steam. A variety of states gave their own opinions, lawsuits were filed, the Supreme Court accepted a few, declined others, there were continued court cases, and it all led to the current law of the land, decided in the Obergefell v. Hodges Supreme Court case on June 26, 2015. This was a 5-4 decision, believe it or not, Roberts was in the minority dissent one of the few times he's been on the right side of an issue. This decision basically said that all states must issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples and recognize it as marriage. Conservatives, or more accurately, social conservatives, mainly those people of faith, mainly Christians, were very against this decision on a few levels. First, gay marriage isn't really marriage. The court can call it what they want, and the human government can make whatever arguments they want, but marriage was set in the Bible back in Genesis about 6,000 years ago as one man and one woman. So the government can do what they want. They can give them a piece of paper. They can give them the same rights as actual married couples. 
but it's just simply not marriage. Now, the other argument that we had was the slippery slope argument. The bottom line of this argument was that if we allowed degeneracy and perversion like this to be brought into the mainstream and normalize it in our society, there is literally no end to what will eventually be argued for, be allowed, and then be normalized. Now, what we know is that Christians are stupid. We're flat earthers, magical sky god believers, you know, that sort of thing. And this so-called slippery slope argument is just a non-starter. There's just no way one thing could ever lead to another. But don't take my word for it. The HuffPo documented the arguments for us very nicely and just handily debunked them with their clearly superior wisdom. Now, I haven't come to the article in question yet. We'll get there. I'm building my case. Just hang with me. So, the HuffPo in April and May of 2013 set out to debunk us silly yet hateful Christians with articles entitled, Beware of the Gay Marriage Slippery Slope, and the Top 10 Arguments Against Gay Marriage All Receive Failing Grades. So, let's take a quick look at these and see how their, can we agree on otherworldly wisdom, is holding up. In the first article, they lay out the insanity of the slippery slope argument, quote, is a common ploy used by politicians and religious zealots to invoke fear by stating that a certain course of action will lead to undesirable consequences. It is being used more frequently now as marriage equality progresses because there is no logical argument against it. Granting two people who love each other, regardless of gender, the license to marry causes no harm. Therefore, if they cannot craft a valid argument against point A, scare them with point B, C, and ultimately Z. So, religious zealots, no logical argument, it causes no harm, cannot craft a valid argument, and scare them. Got it? The entire argument is that we're a bunch of religious morons who hate people. Now, their favorite argument was, and still is, to compare it to slavery, since there were those that argued against the outlawing of slavery, even trying to use the Bible in their arguments. Well, all arguments invoking the Bible must be the same, right? They refuse to look at the arguments based on their own merit and the biblical context, since you can't actually justify slavery using the Bible. They just lump all these things together. That, let me point out, is the opposite of intellectual or genuine. It's a lazy, stupid way to argue a point. I digress. So, the genius author, William Dameron, puts on his Karnak the Magnificent hat, there's a dated reference for you, and tells us what will and won't happen in the future when gay marriage is legalized. So first, what will happen? Well, gay men will marry gay men, lesbians will marry lesbians, straight men and women will marry each other, wedding attendees will laugh, cry, dance, and drink too much, LGBT couples will file a joint tax return, LGBT married couples will receive the approximately 1,100 federal rights that straight married couples receive. Aww. As for what won't happen... Straight people will not turn gay. No one will be allowed to marry their cat, dog, or other animal. No one will be allowed to have multiple spouses. The institution of marriage will not be diminished. 
Yeah. And then he states, quote, if anyone attempts to state why marriage equality is wrong because it sets a precedent or will lead to something dire, there really is no point in countering the argument because their reasoning is flawed and immature. They are grasping at straws. <laughs> oh, I wish I was just as mature in my thinking and prognostication as good old Willie there. I would actually agree with his what will happen part. Uh, it's pretty accurate. What won't happen, well, okay, straight people won't turn gay. All right, maybe not poof, they just turn gay because of gay marriage. But haven't we seen the push for people to be gay, to date trans people? Almost militantly, it's being pushed these days. If if you won't date a tranny, you're transphobic, right? As for can't marry an animal, okay, well, not yet. No multiple spouses? Well, I think we're seeing that one fall as we normalize open relationships and have shows about sister wives and other polygamous marriages, right? And the institution of marriage, yeah, not harmed in the least, right? It's perfectly, ah, it's a-okay. Let's jump to the other article by one Murray Lipp, a social justice activist. What are the 10 failed arguments against gay marriage? Let's take a look here quickly. One, it's not natural. Well, I mean, he argues that marriage is instituted by man, not nature. Well, I'd argue that marriage was instituted by God. Nature actually has no power to do anything, and man just perverts the things of God. And can we just be honest here? Certain parts fit together, almost seemingly by design, where, where others don't really seem to work so good. We're not stupid. We have to be willingly blind to try to claim that it's all natural. This rolls into number two. Marriage is solely for procreation. Now, I don't know that I would argue that one must be married to procreate, regardless of what the Bible says. You technically can procreate outside of marriage, believe it or not, but procreation in general terms seems somewhat important to the propagation of our species. Take this to the absurd end. Everyone is gay. And yes, I know that there are medical ways to create children, but if everyone was gay, the species would die off fairly quickly. Procreation isn't an argument against gay marriage, it's an argument against homosexuality in general. Number three, it's against my religion. Now, he doesn't argue that it's not against a Christian religion. His argument is that the United States is not a Christian nation, so Christian beliefs shouldn't be enshrined as law. Well, I actually somewhat agree with this, but at the same time, although we're not a theocracy, he may want to read our founding documents just a little bit. I, I would predict that he'd be shocked by what he found. Number four, it redefines the institution. Well, his argument falls flat on this one. He argues that the institution has always changed with cultural norms. Women used to be property. Different races used to be illegal. Quote, there was even a time when not one country in the world had legalized same-sex marriage! Exclamation point. Can you believe that? So his argument is that marriage has always been between a man and a woman. So therefore, it shouldn't be that way any longer. Uh, number five, it's a threat to opposite sex marriage. I, I don't think that's been argued. Uh, he hails back to the religious aspect of marriage, which I agree. It goes against that, but I don't think it's a threat to real, actual marriage. Number six, it will harm children. Well, 
this is just silly. Various organizations and studies have proven that a kid doesn't need a mom and a dad. That's what he says. I would argue that between divorced single parent and homosexual couples, the research on the effect on children is fairly conclusive that the traditional family is laid out by God as by far the most successful and the best for kids. Uh, number seven, religious people will be discriminated against. Oh, God. I mean, well, I, I, I don't know if it's solely because of the legalization of gay marriage, but uh, have you looked around you lately? We're going to come back to number eight in a minute. Number nine, civil unions are good enough. Well, gay marriage doesn't need to be legalized to let people love who they want to love or to live together for whatever. The only real standing is that gay couples wanted to have the same rights as married couples. Civil unions may not have been exactly the same, but it was fairly indistinguishable. His only argument is that it's not the same. The reality is they wanted marriage because they wanted marriage, and that's it. Number 10, states have the right to oppose it. Well, I mean, look, it isn't in the Constitution. It's not codified into law. And side note, just notice that Chuck Schumer, even today, won't bring it up for a vote, even though he has the president, the Senate, and the House because he knows it's a very divisive issue, even in Democrat districts. Bottom line, the black population isn't overwhelmingly for this, so it could potentially hurt some re-election chances. So states absolutely, or at least should absolutely, have the right, per the Constitution, to make their own decisions. It should not have been decided by five people. Now let's look at number eight, the slippery slope. Quote, it will lead to marriage involving animals, siblings, children, or groups of people, he says. Quote, people who present these scenarios portray a catastrophic future, with society crumbling under the weight of rampant immorality and social discord. Um, um, okay. So, nine years later, is the morality of the country better or worse? Uh, with grooming of our children, explicit sexual information given to school children, the push of homosexuality and now transgenderism on everyone, especially on our kids, transgender story hour at libraries, transgender burlesque shows with children staring at or even touching the crotches and genitalia of degenerate, sick, perverted men dressed as something resembling a freak show of a woman, transgenders giving messages in church, the depersoning of women, fully endowed men showering with women and girls competing against women, etc. Do I need to go on? So let me ask you again. Better or worse? And that... That brings us finally to our article, found on notthebee.com, headline, Slippery Slope. Here's Spain's Minister of Equality saying children X, yes, she put an X after children, should be able to have sex with adults. <laughs> oh yeah, you heard that right. Irene Montero, 34 years old, and Spain's Minister of Equality, head child groomer and pedophile, said this, quote, the children... The girls and the boys of this country have the right, they have the right to know their own body, to know that no adult can touch their body if they do not want to, if they do not want, and that this is a form of violence. They have the right to know that they can love and have sexual relations with those they want, based, yes, on consent, and those are rights that have been recognized. 
Now, she describes herself in her Twitter bio as psychologist, feminist, mother of three, minister of equality of Spain, I guess. I for them, mother, and they for me. I have no idea what that last bit means, but psychologist and mother and feminist, uh, those terrify me, all put together. Uh, Her children should be removed from her custody, and she should immediately have her license removed, and she should be removed from office. Um, She's dangerous, and she's mentally sick and unstable. Now, Irene, per her Wikipedia page, was apparently a member of the Communist Youth Union of Spain at the age of 16. So, I mean, that's good. We know how much communism respects women and children and people in general. She was the head of social movements with her party and is currently the Secretary of Action, whatever that is. She's led the government's efforts, quote, to allow anyone over the age of 14 to change gender legally without a medical diagnosis or hormone therapy. Did I mention that this lady is sick? No, I know. This is Spain, not the United States. But We're already seeing the same sentiment and attitude here. We're seeing more and more people try to change the term from pedophile because of the negative labeling connotations and stereotypes to maps or minor attracted persons. The reality is we're only a half a step behind Spain on this and probably about a dozen steps ahead on our acceptance and normalization of sexual perversion and deviance. And we are definitely leading the pack in first world nations in the depersoning and dehumanizing of our women and children. When you look at all of history, look at all other religions, Christians, Christianity, it's the only group that have recognized the value and worth of women and children. In all other cultures and religions, children were looked at as generally expendable, as those to be dismissed, ignored, used, and abused. Women like children were viewed as property, also as baby makers, to be married and divorced at will, to be used and discarded, to collect and exploit, and so on. Even Judaism did not view women and children with the value of being fellow image bearers of God, of being precious to God. Now, this, of course, wasn't the system that was set up by God. This was the perversion of the system. The teachings and life of Jesus showed the Jews and us the errors that were worked into the laws originally given by God and showed us that in the eyes of God there were no distinctions with regard to the worth of a human. The United States and all first world nations, those nations with a Christian-based governmental system, even if they don't purport to be or govern like it anymore, have somewhere in their history put in protections for children put in age-of-consent laws, put in harsh penalties for those that would abuse children in any way. They've also granted women equal rights, given them protections as the weaker sex, and have protected them in terms of combat. And the list goes on of ways that we have codified the value and protection of women and children. We are currently seeing that protection being eroded in about every way imaginable, including what we're hearing actually vocalized by this mentally ill, perverted Spanish woman. This is one of the slippery slope arguments that we were told was just foolish. I remember the concern of once we were to allow the normalization of an unnatural relationship or the acceptance into society of sexual perversion, clearly called out in the Bible, the specific question of how far behind would pedophilia be? The general predicted progression was gay marriage, polygamy, pedophilia, bestiality, and then pretty much everything goes. 
we've seen this progression in history. We could easily assume and surmise this is what was going on in the days of Noah, in Sodom, and we know that this is what was going on in ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, as well as the religion of Islam and various tribes and cultures across the globe. So, as has been in history, Christians are back in the position of being the only guardians of the gate. Not only is the slide into perversion happening in the United States, but it's going to progress. If you're a Christian and you're not praying, if you're not willing to protect, if you're voting Democrat, yep, you may not like me saying that, but I'm right, or if you're not voting at all, you're shirking your responsibility. You are not doing what you're called to do, and I'd argue that you might want to be very deliberate about checking the condition of your own soul. I'd have serious questions about the validity of your salvation. I know we're not supposed to question that, but here we are. To not be active in the fight against the evil in this world is to be complicit and accepting of it. Keep that in mind. Christians, and I know, yes, God is ultimately in control, but Christians, this fight is on us now. We're already well down the slope. It's up to us to dig in our heels, our nails, our teeth, I don't, whatever you've got to stop this slide. We must not allow this evil to progress any further. So, get on your knees, open your Bibles, learn about what's actually going on in this world, and do your part to fight against the relentless onslaught of evil. The children, whether they know it or not, are counting on you and I to protect them from the waves of perversion rapidly breaking over them. Ooh, you don't look so good. You okay? Fever? Cough? COVID? Runny nose? Pox goo? Nothing? Are you sure? How about an upset tummy? Maybe some pain off the old backside? <laughs> ah, yes, that's it. Don't worry, I know what's wrong. It's time for the next episode in our look at the Democrat Party platform. <laughs> we all have this pain. Uh, I'd like to say welcome back, but it's more of thank you for not leaving me on my own with this horror show. And as luck would have it, we're going to look at the next section of their platform. Quote, achieving universal, affordable, quality health care. Oh, that sure sounds like a great thing, doesn't it? Now, hold up a minute, Professor. Remember, this be the Democrats we be talking about. Let's see what they think we need in our lives. Well, as with everything else, the bottom line is that they have plans to fix absolutely everything. Now, their definition of fix and mine appear to differ just wildly. And they seem to want to embrace degeneracy, propagate fantasy, and promote segregation a whole bunch. And I'll explain as we go. They open this section not with plans, but with setting up their case against the Republicans. And their case basically is broken down into two points. Universal health care for everyone, and COVID bad, because orange man bad. So they start by touting their rousing success in Obamacare and how they've been able to force the insurance companies to insure, I mean, just everyone. Now, you may agree with this, but insurance companies aren't charities. They're businesses. They're basically legalized gambling, when you really think about it. They take a gamble on you, betting that you'll pay in more than you'll use. You also bet on you, hoping you'll pay in much, much more than you'll ever use. For most of us, this is how it works. And for all of us, this is our preference. And this goes for all insurance, not just health. And this is how we want it. If one party loses the gamble, both parties lose the gamble. And one party is usually in a lot worse shape. 
but now the Democrats have done the equivalent of forcing an auto insurer to give insurance to a guy with multiple DUIs and reckless driving charges driving a death trap of a vehicle. Uh, but as they say, quote, we fundamentally believe health care is a right for all, not a privilege for the few. So uh, they're wrong. Insurance is not a right. Health care is not a right. They claim it to be a right because they're socialists and they're spoiled. They simply believe that this country is just flush with cash, which it's not. We're unbelievably broke. And we right now have the best medical care in the history of the world. Well, I mean, until a lot of very evil cracks appeared during the COVID era. I have a lot of questions now. All throughout history and in various locations around the world today, people... Hold on to your butts here, believe it or not. People actually exist without health care or specifically health insurance. It's not a right. It's literally a privilege. And printing money and saying it's a right doesn't make it a right. Now, of course, they cry that the mean Republicans are mean and say mean things and want to take their toy away and blah, blah, blah. I guess this would be a good place to call the wambulance. <laughs> You see what I did? Anyway, then they move into COVID and how Trump was, again, mean and did everything wrong and how Trump bullied governors for trying to save lives and put the massive stockpiles of personal protective equipment that Obama assembled into a big pile and doused it with gas and lit it off and maniacally laughed at the frontline workers that were dropping like flies because they didn't have all of the needed stuff. Plus, as always, blacks were affected more because COVID racism. <sighs> I've covered this before. Trump didn't really have a chance to refill the federal stockpile of PPE after Obama drained it and didn't refill it. But when told that he had to force companies to make ventilators, he instead just simply asked the companies to do this. And, and surprise, surprise, they did it. And now, of course, New York has a massive number of ventilators that they have absolutely no use for, that they just had to have, that are still in the wrappers. Never used, never needed. And if the virus killed more blacks than other ethnicities, well, I would say talk to the guys that designed the virus. I mean, ask them why they're racist. Although, in reality, that's a simple question because those on the left have always been the racists. Always. They're the ones that opposed the ending of slavery. They were the ones that resegregated the military. They were the ones that opposed civil rights. They're the ones that have pushed abortion with the original intent to get rid of that useless, less of all black population. They denied MLK Jr. the right to have a gun to defend himself. And now their insistence and pressuring of blacks to get on that welfare plantation or else you ain't black. Now, neither Trump nor the Republicans had anything to do with a virus or any of that other stuff. But they've had just about enough of the fantasy that they've created. Quote, as Democrats, we say with one voice, no more. Yep, they're going to fix it. They're going to fix it all. They're going to fix it so good, you'll never even recognize the health care system or level of care that we will have in the United States as compared to before. They break their plan down into points as follows. First, securing universal health care through a public option. Mm. Uh, next, bringing down drug prices and taking on the pharmaceutical industry. 
reducing health care costs and improving health care quality, of which subsets of those are expanding access to mental health and substance use treatment and expanding long-term care services and supports. And then they're going to eliminate racial, gender, and geographic health inequities, you know, by protecting the Native American health and securing reproductive health rights and justice and protecting and promoting maternal health and protecting the LGBTQ plus health. And then they're going to strengthen and support the healthcare workforce. And finally, they're going to invest in health science and research. And that's all. That's how they're going to fix it. They're going to fix it all that way by doing by doing those things that they said they're going to do. So universal health care. They want to build off of Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare and the VA. Now, doesn't that sound great? The problem is that they had Obamacare in full effect for a little while. It did almost nothing that they promised it would do. Insurance prices went up, not down by the $2,500 a year like, you know, Obama kept promising. It increased spending by the average citizen and the government taking more money out of the pockets of the people and increasing the national debt. It still left tens of millions of people uninsured because they can't afford Obamacare or any other insurance, and it shoved a ton of people onto Medicaid, which is subpar at best. But they claim that, quote, private insurers need real competition to ensure they have incentive to provide affordable quality coverage to every American. Problem is, you can't, as a private company, compete with the federal government. You know, the group that can print money and go as far into debt as they choose with absolutely no repercussions, apparently. The way capitalism works is to have the government sit down and shut up. Let private companies compete. You know how you see commercials for Geico and State Farm and Progressive and Farmers and on and on? Why don't we see commercials like that for things like Blue Cross and Cigna and Aetna? Because the government that says insurers need competition are literally competing with the private industry. And they won't allow competition between companies across state lines. This creates miniature monopolies where companies can really set their prices however they want. Ironically, the federal government is supposed to protect the consumer from monopolies. Even more ironically, the federal government is a monopoly. Oh, and they won't put any sort of frivolous lawsuit penalties or loser pay laws on the books, which allows pretty much anyone to sue pretty much any doctor for pretty much any amount for pretty much anything they want. And those doctors paying massive prices for malpractice insurance to protect them against these sue-happy people that are just trying to strike it rich, well, they pass the cost on to us and the insurance companies. Now, don't worry, though. The Democrats aren't going to fix any of those problems. No, no, no. No, no they're going to use their money and power to push for Medicaid-based or state-based universal insurance for just everyone. You know, because it's a right. Now, and they'll also apparently build health facilities just everywhere, especially, quote, the underserved communities. And they'll make it mandatory for providers to provide their service no matter if the person can pay or not. You know, forced charity, essentially. That said, the private sector has taken care of this already. Long time ago, in fact. Nobody is denied emergency care. I believe that that's illegal to do just everywhere. I mean, unless you're unvaxxed and then you can just go die in the street like the dog you are. And there are a number of charities, either by hospitals or other private charities, that will cover part or all of your medical bills if you're truly in need. But the Democrats promised to come in and say, yeah, do what you're doing already. But now they're adding an or else to the end of that. So, you know, 
There you go, fixed. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, bringing down drug prices. They said that they will ensure that we don't pay any more than other advanced economies. Okay, so if you want a very comprehensive review of drug prices, follow the link from Cato.org down in the notes. Data, facts, charts, everything. And it pretty much debunks the Democrats who are lying, very likely knowingly, about drug prices. Very quickly summed up, the bottom line, the privately branded new drugs and therapies under patent are much more expensive in the United States because, by law, our government has to stay out of the negotiation of prices with drug companies, leaving it to just open competition. But those drugs only account for about 10 to 15 percent of all the drugs purchased in the United States. The other 85 to 90 percent of drugs purchased are all off-patent generics that do the exact same thing or they won't be certified. And in the case of generics, the U.S. is paying about a third to a half of the price of other countries. So 85% of our drugs are at least half the price of other countries. 15% of our drugs are upwards of even three times the cost of other countries. What the Dems want to do, though, is exactly what was seen with this COVID not a vaccine. They want to partner the government with the private entities and make a public-private partnership. You know, like Moderna, the Moderna fake vax, that was a public-private partnership. So for every dose that the government bought from Moderna to give to us poor, helpless, dying creatures, they were putting some percentage of that money back into their own pockets. And by doing this partnership, the government can force them to price meds wherever they want them to, to price them. And let me say this, nothing the government touches ever works. Um, I don't want them touching medications. And I guarantee the Dems are cherry picking and tweaking the data about drug prices in order to lie to the American people on this one. Now, next is reducing cost while improving quality. Sounds pretty simple, right? And once again, their solution is universal government health insurance, basically through Medicaid. They say, quote, Democrats know we can reduce out-of-pocket costs for families while improving the quality of health care for all. Oh, well, if they know it. I mean, then they say, quote, we will vigorously use antitrust laws to fight against mega mergers in the hospital, insurance and pharmaceutical industries that would raise prices for patients by undermining market competition while they're trying to ensure everyone on public welfare programs and they're partnering with drug manufacturers, creating the largest monopolies of all. I mean, we're living in a clown world here, folks. I mean, you, you can see this, right? It's not just me. They'll expand access to mental health and substance use treatment. And of course, they'll do that by spending money, funding more clinics, more training, forcing insurance companies to apparently do more, etc., etc., because that's the answer to everything. Just spend more. But their draconian lockdown and isolation policies have proven to have a massive effect on mental health. The push to deny reality and allow anyone to be anything they feel like is creating a mental health crisis that the world has never seen. They've opened the border back up to allow all sorts of illegal drugs, including massive shipments of fentanyl, which is only designed to kill, into our country. And they're pushing to legalize weed everywhere, which studies are now showing, since we've got some time in certain states with it, it's much more dangerous than they'll ever admit. If they wanted to help with mental health and substance abuse, you'd almost think they'd try to stop making things worse. That's if they actually wanted to uh, wanted to help.
Uh, they're going to expand long-term care services and support. Again, money. Expand Medicare and give tax credits. That's their answer. They will also, quote, pursue policies to improve nursing home staffing and quality standards, strengthen accreditation processes, and combat corporate abuses in nursing homes and independent living facilities. Notice they didn't say they'd do anything or fix anything. They would just pursue policies. That's political speak for, we're going to lie to you and then we're going to do, you know, nothing. Next, they're going to eliminate that darned racial, gender, and geographic health inequity. Well, it's about time. That's all I have to say about that. The number of non-white, gender-confused, hillbilly bodies that I just see stacked up outside the front doors of these small-town racist clinics scratching and clawing to get in. Well, I mean, it's just too many. It's too many bodies. I mean, some, some bodies is expected. But, but when it turns into this many, it's just too many, right? Okay, so they start by saying, quote, the national statistics on American health care mask profound disparities in insurance rates, access to primary and specialized care, and disparate health outcomes, which are a symptom of those disparities in access. In other words, they're making a preemptive strike because the data doesn't back up their claim. Then they lay out the horrors of this country. The uninsured rate is nearly three times higher for Latinos and nearly twice as high for black Americans as it was for whites. Some segments of the Asian American and Pacific Islander population faced uninsured rates rivaling those of black Americans and Latinos. More than one in five Native Americans and Alaska Natives was uninsured. Black children are far more likely than white children to suffer from asthma. Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders, and Black Americans are diagnosed with diabetes at higher rates than whites. Average life expectancy is more than two years lower for rural Americans compared to those who live in metropolitan areas. Now, in this case, they recognize that they need a plan, not just talk. Then they offer a plan. Well, not a plan, but they're talking more about the contributors to the problem. Uh, they say tackling the social, economic, and environmental inequities, the social determinants of health like that contribute to worse health outcomes for low-income Americans and people of color. You know, poor housing, hunger, inadequate transportation, mass incarceration, air and water pollution, and of course, gun violence. Now, their plan to spend more and expand coverage and add the phrase or else to more existing laws. And, th and that's really about it. That's That was pretty much their plan. Just, just, just do it and we'll spend more money. They're also going to pursue environmental and climate justice for Native Americans, which how many of us have been approached by a Native American asking when climate justice will be done? I mean, just raise your hand, look around. Then they're going to, quote, secure reproductive health rights and justice. Well, this is quite simply uh, abortion on demand for any woman. No definition given of that term in here, though, because her body, her choice. They'll also restore our federal tax dollars to Planned Parenthood. So how much do you want to pay your taxes now? Uh, they go through a variety of ways of saying the same thing, abortion, abortion, and more abortion. And then they say, quote, Democrats will protect the rights of all people to make personal health care decisions. Um, where has that promise been over the last year and a half, we'll say, because last I saw old President Vegetable, he was forcing the military and the healthcare staff into getting vaccinations and tried to get most of industry to be forced to take the totally safe and so effective it just makes me want to puke, not a vax. Remember, do it. 
Because if you don't, you make God cry and you love Satan. But they'll protect the rights of everyone, right? Deemed worthy of protection, of course. What they meant to say is that they'll protect the rights of some as long as they agree with the party line. But although they put a lot of effort into making sure we know they want babies to be dead, they also want to protect and promote maternal health. Then they start the first sentence of this section with black women. Yeah, this section is basically down with the white woman. Again, it's just more of the same. Expand Medicare. Ooh, wait, something new. Implement implicit bias training for all health professionals. Well, that'll fix the problem because once again, I don't know about you, but I've seen so many black women just openly weeping in the waiting rooms because the doctors absolutely will not treat a non-whitey. Now, they wrap up this subsection with, quote, we are committed to creating a society where children are safe and can thrive physically, emotionally, and educationally, and spiritually. And I'd find this incredibly funny if the absolute lies weren't so blatant uh, and so dangerous. See, they don't care about children in any of these aspects, not one. I mean, unless words don't mean what they used to, which, I mean, that's a very, very bad thing. But it's also very, very possible looking at what's being said today. Now, moving on, and frankly, I'm a little bit offended that this is so far into the healthcare section, protecting LGBTQ plus health. Now, did you know that Trump took actions to create, quote, regulations allowing doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies to discriminate against patients based on their sexual orientation or gender identity? Huh. I thought that I had seen a lot of the gays, I think it's a pride, a pride of gays just flouncing around looking all unmedicalized. And this now explains the no homo sign in my doctor's office door. So here's what actually happened very briefly. Trump fought back against the Obama administration's broad redefinition of the word sex in Title IX, which prohibits discrimination based on sex, which is defined as male or female in certain federally funded programs. Obama redefined it as whatever you feel like you are, and also threw abortion under there. Now, what Trump did is brought suit saying that they were illegally changing the definition of the term sex, uh, to which a federal court agreed, and then a second federal court agreed, and finally a final ruling made by the first federal court saying, eh, no, you can't do that, Mr. Obama. Now, what this did is save American taxpayers nearly $3 billion over five years, of mailings, inserts, and notices about these new manufactured and illegal rights. And, and that was all. So see, orange man discrimination here. Uh, the lies and spin used by the left are just amazing. And the stupidity of their voting horde, uh, both alive and dead, is even more amazing. So what is their promise then? Well, it's to stop the discrimination. Okay, well, that, that's already done. That's already a thing. And then they're going to force insurance companies to cover, quote, all medically necessary care for gender transition. Medically, medically necessary words. As well as force them to cover HIV AIDS drugs and treatment, HIV prevention meds. These are so you can go have your indiscriminate relations with whoever or whatever or whoever's uh, without a care in the world. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Pharmaceutical. They also said, quote, Democrats will recommit the federal government to ending the HIV AIDS epidemic by 2025. Um, what, uh, what's the date today? Huh. Oh, and, and they'll continue to fight to ensure those practicing various forms of non-normal sex can donate blood because, you know, science. So, so that's nice for all of us. 
They're also going to support that healthcare workforce, apparently by mandating they all get the clot shot or you're fired and we hope you die. And once again, they're just trying to fight the horrors of United States racism. Apparently, the majority of, quote, doctors, nurses, home health aides, physicians, assistants, public health professionals, home care workers, nursing home workers, cleaners and service workers are black women. Now, I'm surprised that they didn't throw in the demographic of working women of color, you know, just to ensure the scales tipped in their favor. Even with all their categories, I still have a hard time believing their claim that they're the majority, but okay, whatever. I don't, it doesn't matter. Anyway, they want to pay them more and give them more pay time off and give them better benefits. And aren't all these private sector jobs? Why is the government getting into the mix on this? They also want them all to have the ability to unionize and they want the federal minimum wage of $15 and they want them unionized as well. Finally, they're going to invest in health science and research. Summed up, they're going to increase funding, increase grants, increase investment, break down silos, that sounds nice, accelerate research by creating more government agencies, more increased funding, but this time the increase is to fight that darn racism and all other sorts of isms that the white man has wrought. They also want to increase diversity of those they give money to because they don't want it to go to the best candidate regardless of skin color. They want it to go to the coloriest candidate regardless of competency. And they're going to protect scientists because Trump tried to have them all murdered or something. And that's the end of this long-winded section. I'm sorry again for the length, but it's not me, it's them. They really can pack a ton of spin and lies and so many straw men and oodles of fantasy and buckets of general malarkey into a handful of pages. Now look, I keep saying the Democrats are evil, and although it doesn't come through quite as blatantly in this section, oh, it's still there, what are their goals? Spend, spend, spend. That's their answer for everything. And as I pointed out in the last episode, spending money you don't have and lashing that debt to the backs of your children to worry about, and we're starting to see those chickens come flocking home right now, well, it's purely evil. Even more so, to lie to the American people about the actions the Trump administration took in order to prop yourself up is also evil. Whether they like Trump or not, if they can't run on their own merits, placing their plan up against the true record that Trump has, well, that's sad. And it's evil, as they're doing nothing but using deceit to trick people. Furthermore, to force taxpayers to pay for abortions, gender-affirming surgery, or as we should call it, human mutilation for the sake of affirming a mentally ill individual, and paying for drugs that allow people to go live whatever kind of degenerate lifestyle they choose, I don't know, it almost seems wrong to me, right? Doesn't it to you a little bit? In fact, the Bible says so much about lying and perversion and things like that. Multiple times in Romans, we hear that God gave them up because of their wicked, perverse hearts. We see Israel berated in Ezekiel because their sinfulness and perversion was worse than Samaria and Sodom. We see in Jude that false teachers will creep into the church teaching all of this perversion as truth. Huh. And then we see Paul speaking to Timothy, in which he says, quote, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. How many of these categories does the Democrat Party fall into as a whole? And look, I'm not claiming moral purity on the right. I mean, far from it. But when you compare sides against this fairly compact list, 
Which side would you say falls deeply into the abyss of condemnation by the law? This is evil. The left is sided with the religion of anti-Christ. They want nothing to do with God. They want everything to do with the perversions of the world, with, with self, with pride. A vote for the Democrats or choosing to not vote against the Democrats, where does that put you? So I would say think long and hard how you could potentially have to justify your vote, knowing what you know even just now. And then join me next time when we look at how they believe we should be protecting communities, building truth through reforming the criminal justice system, who we already have data as to how well that's worked, and possibly we'll start tackling their plan to heal the soul of America. Oh yeah, it's getting better and better the deeper we go, isn't it? (laughs) All right, well, until next time. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.